0: Good morning, everyone. We are down to our last lesson in this series on the Minor Prophets. It's a challenging series. It's meant to challenge us. It's meant to get in our face and and really make us think about who we are and, and to be the people that God wants us to be. Next week, we're going to begin a brand new series. Peyton's going to get us started off the first two weeks as we deal with, with, uh, with summer road trip. That's the name of it. And so we're going to be looking at various roads in the Bible that these great events in, in the Bible talk about. And so how do those things apply to our lives? So we're excited about it. And like I said, Peyton next week is going to get us started and I'm really looking forward to it. But today we are in the book of Haggai. As we said, we're not going into all of the minor prophets. We just picked out six of these and this is the last and it may be my favorite. So the book of Haggai, you know what happens when a nation is conquered, when they're burned to the ground, left in ruins, when it's wealthy and most influential people are carried off as prisoners into a foreign country The prophecies of Nahum came true, and in 586 BC, Babylon came down into Judah for a third time, coming to Jerusalem, destroying its walls, the temple, and the city. Most of the people were taken into captivity. They would remain there for 70 years, just as Jeremiah had prophesied. Also, Isaiah prophesied that one day Babylon's going to go down. They're gonna be defeated and their gods by this king and even name the king in the prophecy, his name will be Cyrus. And sure enough, in 539 BC, they fell to the Persian empire under Cyrus II. Cyrus now is going to allow God's people to return to their homeland to rebuild their temple. And and that's where we are in our text today. It is the second exodus of sorts. Only this time, it's not going to be two or three million Jews marching to the promised land. But there will be 49,897 who will return. But there were several, most of them they were content to stay in Babylon. You see, once they were taken captives, they were not necessarily imprisoned, if you will. And they were allowed to settle into the Babylonian culture because they believed that if a group of people that brought there and they were able to um, immerse themselves into this new culture, then over time, they're not going to want to go back. They want to settle in with these people. And that's exactly what happened to many of these folks. But there was a remnant, a small group who wanted to get back to the homeland. They wanted to get back to the worship of their God. They are the most committed of the Jews. It was difficult. It was a dangerous journey, some 900 miles. And once they get there, it's it's still going to be difficult because now they have to deal with rebuilding everything It's going to be a trying time. But let's talk about Zerubbabel for a moment. Normally we talk about the prophet, but Zerubbabel is the main player in all of this. You see him right off the bat in chapter one and in verse one, he was selected to lead the remnant back to Israel. He is the grandson of Jehoiachin, who was the last king of Judah, before Babylonian conquest, and the Bible tells us about Jehoiachin that he was a prisoner. But eventually, he threw off his prison clothes and he began to eat at the table of the king in Second Kings chapter twenty-five and verse twenty-nine. Zerubbabel, who was born in captivity, he probably. You know, he, he was given some influence there because of who his grandfather was. And so he is called to go back and he will be the governor of Judah and he will be in charge of reconstructing the temple of the Lord. After laying the foundation for the new temple, I mean, things are exciting, but then all of a sudden the work stops. For 16 years, no work was done, and it's because of the Samaritans, which was a group of of half-breeds, if you will, of Jews and Gentiles who had intermarried and their children, and they frustrated the work. The people became very apathetic because all the things that they had hoped to be fulfilled and coming home had not been fulfilled. The walls were still in shambles. The the temple had still not been rebuilt. There was a famine. They're still under the control of the Persian government. So Haggai writes this book, prophesies to these people about their decision and to get back to work in rebuilding God's house. There is so many lessons in here, and I just picked out two. I had three, I even took out one just for time restraints. But here's two big ones that I believe really resonates to us today in our situation. The first thing is this: make God's priorities our priorities. You would think that after 70 years in captivity, these people wouldn't have as much, <laughs> much of a problem with that, but they did. In fact, if you look in your Bible, chapter one, verse four, he says, this is the Lord speaking. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? In other words, you've given more concern for your houses and your own possessions than you have to the Lord's house and God calls them on it. And he tells them in verse five, he says, consider your ways. Remember those three words, consider your ways. He says, I want you to consider the choices that you're making and what they are saying about your priorities. Because of it, in verse six, God says, I haven't been blessing your harvest. And so beginning in verse seven, the Lord's continues and he says, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. In other words, I ruined it. Wine declares the Lord of hosts because of my house that lies in ruins, which each of you busies himself with his own house. God purposely frustrates their efforts because, uh, because they had not given this priority to God. And some would say, well, why would God be so judgmental? But really the question is, why would God bless a group of people who are not going to give him glory? Building this house would rebuild also the shame and the disgrace of the name of the Lord for the fact that his house is in ruins. This message applies as much to us as it did in that day and time. During this pandemic, there are people who have stopped coming to church. And look, we know there are those who have health issues and and those who've had concerns. We all understand that. But there are those who have stopped going to church, but they continued to go to work, go to restaurants, go shopping, hang out with others. You say, well, how do you know this? Because our own people have seen it. <laughs> They've come to us and, said, you know, there's people that we haven't seen and we're seeing them out. I've seen a couple people. Didn't even engage them because I saw them. It's a good example of, of taking care of our own houses while we're leaving God's house in shambles. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you we're not asked to live in poverty. God is not saying that we can't have nice houses. What he's saying is, where are your priorities? What are you putting first? When I was in Baymanette, Alabama, I served under an elder named Jimmy Faulkner. It's the, he's the one that my alma mater, Faulkner University was named after. He was a very successful businessman. He was a senator in the state of Alabama for years. And when he was having this financial success, he was ready to build his dream home. But he wanted to first fund the building of a house of worship for the for the Christians in Baymanet before he built his own house. And that's exactly what he did. Now eventually he built that beautiful house. It was it was beautiful especially for its time. But he put God first. But you may say, well, you know, a millionaire doesn't really resonate with me, so let me put it down to my level. A few months ago, uh, Missy and I decided we were ready to buy a house. But one of the things we said is, we don't want to be house poor. You know what I mean? In other words, we don't want to be so strapped by a house that we can't have money to be able to do other things, and that could be pleasurable things, but it also had to do with, and our giving to the Lord, it had to get, you know, other causes for Christ. And, and that means that, you know, we probably won't get everything we want in a house. It, it probably means that we're not going to be in the exact neighborhood we might want to be in. And right now it means we can't even buy a house because the market is so high and, and we would be house poor. And I don't tell you this for you to think that we're perfect because let me tell you, we've made plenty of decisions. We're just trying to consider our ways. We're just, we're just trying to figure out before we make big decisions, important decisions, are we putting God first or are we putting our pleasures first? Is our house the most important thing? Here's another lesson that we learn. Serve God even when it's hard. Serve God even when it's hard. You would think that when Zerubbabel came marching into Jerusalem triumphantly, he would be welcomed like a king, but he wasn't. In fact, Israel, when they come walking back into the homeland, they are crushed. They're disappointed. Judah is a wilderness. Jerusalem is in ruins. There's corruption everywhere. The locals didn't trust them. They they wondered if they were going to come in here, and they're going to try to retake their family's lands. And who is this guy anyway, Zerubbabel? He's a foreigner. I mean, listen to his name, Zerubbabel. His name means offspring of Babylon. He wasn't even born in the land of Judah. And here are these folks, and, and most of them, they would have been born there. And who is he to come in and be the governor of this place? So the locals did everything they could to frustrate Zerubbabel and the people from building God's temple. And it worked for a while, according to Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But Haggai comes along and he speaks to them on behalf of God. And they get back to work. And in four years, According to Ezra or Zechariah four and verse seven, Zerubbabel puts a capstone on the temple, which means that it had been completed. They pushed through the hard stuff. Obeying God won't always be easy for us. This past year has been one of the hardest, I think, for Churches of Christ, for churches in this nation's in my lifetime. I'm, I'm a part of a group and there's about a thousand of us, ministers, youth ministers, elders, other leaders in the church, various capacities. And we've heard their stories and it's just been amazing to me how much the church has been attacked, not only by those outside the church, but also those inside the church. You had those who decided, we're not going to close our doors when all this pandemic broke out. We're going to try to do the best we can, but we're going to, we're just, we're going to be here. And then there were those who said, well, they just don't care about people. They don't care about their people. And then there were those who did shut their doors for a time and, and, and because they felt like that was the thing to do and be safe and, and yet they were were criticized for not trusting God. It seems like every church that has required a mask has had people, Christians, who say, well, then we're not coming if you're going to make us wear a mask. Some people have put more faith in conspiracy theories than they have in God's people. Who you voted for in a worldly election became a a test of fellowship for your spiritual family. God's temple, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is us, and I'm here to tell you that God's temple is in shambles. But the Lord is calling us to rise up. He wants us to come and to rebuild His glory once again that has been torn down. It it begins with our worship and coming together and just shaking the rafters on this place. To look forward to the time of sharing the cup and the bread of Jesus together as a people. People out in our world, they, they don't like God's morals. They don't like a Jesus man or a Jesus woman. They don't want us to love our church. They want us to get wrapped up in all the worldly things that are going on out there rather than the kingdom of God. God's temple needs to be restored. And we've got to get back to doing the hard things, and we can't do that if we are constantly looking for our pleasure, for the things that make us comfortable, rather than doing what God says is good, Malachi 6 and verse 8, which is to do justice and mercy and walking humbly with God. Many want a country club mentality. They want to be members of a place that's going to serve them. This past year, I really believe that God has used this time to separate the selfish from the selfless because there are those who I'm not going to be there unless everything is done my way. And then you had others just like, you know what? We can can agree to disagree, but I just want to be with God's people. I just want to assemble with them. If you ever... If there's ever a time we as a church needed each other, this has been that time. It won't always be easy, but let me tell you something. If you're waiting for a time for things to be easy, or if you only serve God when things are easy, you won't be serving him very long. After this virus shut our doors on two occasions, a small remnant returned each time small in number, but everyone was so happy to be able to be back and to be with one another. Others have come back slowly, and, and we have welcomed them with open arms. In fact, if you're one of those people listening, we can't wait for you to come back. Some though are going to remain in Babylon because they have grown accustomed to their new way of life. They have forgotten the homeland. In chapter two, verse three of Haggai, he says, who is left among you who saw his house in this former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? As the temple foundation was laid, people reacted in two different ways. There were those who had never seen the former glory of Solomon's temple. And, and when this foundation was laid out, according to Ezra three verses 10 and 11, they are, they're singing, they're shouting, they're praising God. They're so excited. But then there was this older generation and they knew that Zerubbabel's temple was not going to be as glorious in size and in every way like the Temple of Solomon. And they just are weeping. The Ark of the Covenant is not there. It's lost. The Shekinah glory of God has not come back. We have had some new people in our fold over this past year. We've celebrated with some of them in the baptistry. There are those who have come to us, and, and I can, I'm just telling you, people, they've come to me in tears, and they've said, you have no idea what this church has meant to my marriage. You have no idea what this church has meant to my love for God, and they are just so excited. And then there are those who have been here for years, and they see our smaller numbers our singing isn't as good, and that's no fault to our song leaders at all. It's just your social distance. you got less people. You're wearing ma- I mean, it's, it's, it's been tough. And then you see all of these things, and it's like this is not like the former glory that we had remembered before. In Haggai 2, verse 4 and 5, he says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel Listen, things may be tough, but you know what God is saying? I am with my remnant. He's saying my spirit, it's with you. It's with us. If we devote ourselves to his work, he will do everything that is necessary for it to be completed for his good. He goes on in verse six through nine. Listen to this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, listen, this is so good. I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater then the former says the Lord of hosts, and in this place, I will give peace. Shalom declares the Lord of hosts, his glory. He says, is going to be greater than Solomon's temple. And that is a promise that would be fulfilled when Jesus, the son of God comes walking into this temple. Some years later, the divine presence of God there in that temple You see, the ultimate fulfillment of the temple is the Messiah. He is the great high priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice for humanity. An even greater fulfillment is coming of the temple according to Revelation chapter 21, 22 through 26. We haven't even seen it yet. I was depressed. But I broke out of my depression when I began to see God's glory working in in amazing ways in this place. The people who came each week, they loved each other. We have had more peace in this church than any time that I can remember being here. It's amazing. Just the peace. I've heard how some of you have cared for each other. I've watched how, how people in this church have loved on one another. And then there was Mission Sunday. And here's this small remnant. And we didn't even know as leaders if we could even come near to what we needed. And yet they just, they just blew it out of the water. Blew it, folks. That's only God stirring. It had to be. There's no other explanation. Ah. <sighs> I've joined in the praise of our newcomers, the excitement of wanting to be back, and God is continuing to bless us in ways that we never imagined. I'm watching with great anticipation of what God's spirit can do with what Peyton Peyton is doing with tethered. And you may say, well, I still don't understand exactly what it is. That's okay. You just keep praying. You just keep praying for it. You keep praying for God's work in all of this, because I'm telling you, there's something here that it seems to be very special because God's glory can be even greater than it ever was in this church. But we've got to put God's kingdom first, and we've got to put him over our own worldly ambitions. We've got to put him over our own comfort in order for that to happen. I want us to end where we began with Zerubbabel. God declared in chapter 2, verse 23, he is his signet ring. Now, a signet ring, it was etched in there, a certain symbol. And when it was used with hot wax on on an envelope or some document, it let it be known that this was the official seal. Zerubbabel was a symbol that the Davidic line had not ended. Remember who he is. He is the grandson of Jehoiachin, the last king of Judah. In his blood ran the hope of the whole world. He he and his father are the only two that are in both the lineage of Mary and Joseph. And it's smack dab in the middle of the messianic family tree. When we read about Zerubbabel, listen, we're not just getting a history lesson here. It's so much more. It is God's story about humanity. It's our story. It finds its climax in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the descendant of David who has come to rescue the sinful exiles, us, from our own bondage of sin. He is is the one who establishes his temple within his own people by his spirit that comes at the point of baptism. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the king. He is our savior. And if you're listening this morning and and Jesus isn't a part of your life, let me tell you, Jesus came to save you. He loves you. He wants your devotion. He wants your commitment. And if you're listening and, and, and you have lacked in your priorities, you've allowed this virus to become uh, some kind of excuse for you. You're, you you, maybe you're continuing to do other things, but you're leaving God's house in shambles, then repent. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. God wants you. He loves you. He does everything he can to bring us back. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Father, we thank you for times that you discipline us and try to bring us back to where we're supposed to be. Because we know that it's there, that you, your work is, is, has power. We know it's there that your spirit continues to work within us. And Father, I pray, I pray that your spirit will work within those who may be listening right now. Father, just convict them if they need to be convicted. Encourage them if they need to be encouraged. Whatever ways necessary, Father, you know these things. And Father, we ask these in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who came through the line of Judah, through Zerubbabel, who came through Mary and Joseph, and who came as the descendant of David, who sits on the throne and fulfills the ultimate of the kingdom of God. Father, we love you, and we thank you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.